0: You're reading today's John 3, verses 1 through 15. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent into the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Thanks, Heather.
1: Good morning, Grace Church. So, at the end of John chapter 2, John described a large group of people who believed in Jesus' name because they witnessed him perform miraculous signs. Instead of being good news, on the surface at least, that sounds like good news, people believing in the name of Jesus, having seen him perform miracles. But instead of being good news, however, John lets his readers know that their belief wasn't genuine, that they believed in Jesus in a certain way but not in a genuine genuine way. We called that last week unbelieving belief. It was unbelieving belief. John tells us that Jesus knew this. He he knew their true hearts and for that reason he did not entrust himself to them. Again, all that was last week, John chapter 2 verses 23 to 25. Well, in our passage for this morning, John recounts the particular story of one of those unbelieving believers. So generally, in chapter 2, 23 to 25, we're told that these people existed at this time in Jerusalem. Well, in chapter 3, 1 through 15, we get a particular example of one of those unbelieving believers. That is what John stated in principle at the end of 2, he gives an example of at the beginning of 3. And the man Nicodemus and his interaction with Jesus were given a picture in a real life, live person what unbelieving belief looks like. And in the story of Nicodemus, John provides us with a few signs of unbelieving belief. By the way, this, these few sentences I'm about to give you are the whole sermon in one paragraph. John provides us with a few signs through Nicodemus of unbelieving belief as well as the means to overcome it. Signs of unbelieving belief include coming to Jesus in secret, coming to him merely because of his signs, and leaving Jesus more confused and discouraged than when you came. Those are three signs of unbelieving belief. And the means by which God has given for his people to become genuine believers is new spiritual birth. New birth is needed to see and enter the kingdom of God. It comes from the Spirit. There is mystery in it. And it means that the kingdom of God is both already and not yet. I'll unpack all of that. So how do I hope you hear this text, this sermon? Uh, As I just acknowledged and as I'll explain a little bit more later, there's mystery in what Jesus reveals to us through his interaction with Nicodemus. But mainly, here's what I hope. You, the way you hear all of this. I hope you're thinking of some unbelieving, some non-Christian family member, uh, a, a kid or a parent or a brother or sister or a non-Christian neighbor um, or or a coworker, and you've shared the gospel with them and you've shared the gospel with them and you've prayed for them and you, you've hoped that they would trust in Jesus, just trust in Jesus and you will be saved. That's the heart of the gospel, but they remain hard to it. They, they don't believe. They they continue even to think of it as folly. So how do I hope you hear this? One, I hope that you come more to understand why that is in your real life. And then secondly, I hope that you leave this morning thankful to God that he is ultimately responsible to change their hearts, not you. So I hope you hear this both as a way to explain or, or a way to understand better the experience we all have, at least if we ever share the gospel with non-Christians. And secondly, I hope you all leave with a sense of peace and joy, that it is God who does transforming work. That's not our, our job. So with that, let's pray. God, I pray that if there are any unbelieving believers among us this morning, I'm sure there are, I pray that if there are, or that there are that they might be able to recognize these signs of unbelieving belief in themselves, in order that they may turn from it with your help to real belief. And so I, I pray that I, I pray that anyone in this room who is an unbelieving believer would see the signs Nicodemus displays, recognize their belief as unbelief, and turn from it with your help to genuine belief. And And God, I pray as well that if there are any unbelievers in this room who don't believe and know they don't believe, along with the unbelieving believers, that you would grant them the ability to see things as they truly are, that you would give new birth, that you would open eyes to see, ears to hear, the glories that are beyond measure, that are in you, and that as we heard in Berea, are all around us continually this this morning, and Your eternal nature and divine power and creation, the ordering of things and the moral sense that we all have and being made in your image that we know there's a God. Thank you for all of that. I pray that you'd open our eyes, give us real eyes, spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears to hear. And in all of that, you would get all the glory. That our worship of you would grow this morning as we consider your word and your amazing grace. This is, this passage is the amazing grace that we sing about so often. I pray that we all grow to appreciate it even more this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, this this story is meant to help us see what the unbelieving belief of 2.23 to twenty five looks like and how to overcome it. So first, what does it look like? Look at verse 1. Now there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. The unbelieving believer has a name. His name was Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. That means two main things for us this morning. First, it means that he was well-trained in the Word of God. He was taught more about the Word of God than probably all of us in this room. And as a result, he had a position of power and influence among the people of God, Abraham's children, the Israelites. That's the first thing we need to know is he was well-trained. He understood God's word. Second, it means that he had a lot to lose in the eyes of the world. To be a Pharisee at this time and in this way and to trust in Jesus means that he had a lot to lose in the eyes of the world by associating with Jesus. So remember, this was early in Jesus' public ministry still. He was still, he was just starting to make waves. The religious leaders weren't quite sure what to make of him yet, weren't quite sure what to do with him yet. But after having cleansed the temple, performed signs, and having begun to teach, it didn't take long for Jesus to become public enemy number one in the eyes of Nicodemus's fellow Pharisees. So combined, get this grace, in worldly terms, from, from a worldly perspective, this means that Nicodemus had almost nothing to gain if he were to truly trust in Jesus. Even in giving the appearance of believing in Jesus Even that would have likely cost him dearly, socially, financially, and religiously, at least his religious standing among the Pharisees and the people. Nicodemus knew all of that. And so, at this point at least, he hardened his heart against anything but unbelieving belief. He'd seen and heard enough about Jesus to be impressed by some of his teaching and some of his signs. Enough to want to meet him, even. But in the end, Nicodemus considered the cost of following Jesus to be too high and was unwilling to pay it. So seeing in Nicodemus and the many of chapter two, twenty three to twenty five, how easy it is to be an unbelieving believer and not even know it. That's the scariest part is not just that unbelieving believers exist, but that oftentimes they don't even know they're unbelieving believers. We'd be right to want some diagnostic tools. How do we know if that's what I, I am? How do I know if that's what I am or my kids or my family or friends? Well, God is kind and he gives us some diagnostic tools in this In this passage. Three, I mentioned them earlier. Let's consider each of them from the text. First, like the Pharisees and the religious leaders would do on the night of Jesus' crucifixion, Meaning, in the most treacherous possible way, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. That is, when he was least likely to be noticed, and the stakes were lowest. Verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night. Unbelieving belief is willing to follow Jesus only when it costs little and none of the costs are permanent. It is willing to be associated with Jesus only around other people who are willing to, be, to associate with Jesus. Unbelieving belief will only go to him in secret. Unbelieving belief counts Jesus as a small amount of gain, but not as much as the wealth and health this world offers. While going to Jesus might otherwise seem like belief, the fact that Nicodemus went in the dark is the first sign that he was actually an unbelieving believer. So we're right in each of these signs to check our own hearts. Are you more willing to align with Jesus when his adversaries are least likely to notice? Are you embarrassed to be associated with Jesus at certain times or among certain people? Do you have your own version of coming to Jesus by night? The second sign that Nicodemus was an unbelieving believer is that his belief was rooted in Jesus' signs. We talked about this a lot last week and the previous passage. We can't miss though, once again, the parallel between chapter 3 verse 2 and chapter 2 verse 23. Last, last week in 223 we read, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. The signs were the source of their belief. Jesus knew their hearts and he did not entrust himself to them. Well, in 3-2 we read, then the, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Again, it was the signs that drew. Again, on the surface, both of these might seem like genuine belief. We should see Jesus' miracles if we're ever so fortunate to do that and believe in Jesus. But both are rooted in witnessing the signs of Jesus alone. And the signs by themselves are not sufficient to generate generate genuine belief. We'll see this more and more as we work through John's gospel. But just listen to this. If you have your Bibles, even turn there and mark this. Because if, if you're like me, you have ever wondered, God, if I could just see a sign or a miracle, I would believe or my belief would grow. If you have your bibles and are so inclined go to John 12 37 to 43 and if not write that down and look it up later i'm going to read it to you it's later in his ministry more of these signs had been performed though he had done though he had done so many signs before them and john will say later he did so many that if they were all recorded they wouldn't even fit in this book or all the books of the world and so though he had done, Jesus, though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. I'm going to keep going. So the so that, it even tells us why, and I'm not going to preach this sermon now. This will come in John 12. But so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. What, what prophecy, you wonder? Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So when people of God speak the, the truth of the word of God, Some people don't hear. Lord, who has believed? Some people don't believe what he heard from us. And to whom has has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So the word of God is preached. Who can see it? Who can hear it? Who can believe it? The answer in Isaiah is few. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Still quoting John 12 here. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even, this is the key line for this passage, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. it came by night. So that they could, they would not be put out of the synagogue. And again, it tells us why. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Nicodemus will pop up again in chapter 7, and he even hung around Jesus enough to be there and help out with his burial, burial after his crucifixion in chapter 19. It's hard to say whether he truly came to faith ever or not, but something about Jesus was so drawing to him, that he, he stuck around the whole time. But at this point, it's hard to imagine a diagnosis more appropriate than the one found in the last few verses we just read. Many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Again, this isn't hard to see in Nicodemus's actions. If he really believed that Jesus was a teacher come from God... Then he wouldn't have come by night, and as we'll see in a second, he wouldn't have pressed back on Jesus' teaching. He would have come by day without fear of implications. He would have fallen down before Jesus in humble submission, and joyful worship. Again, this is, these are signs that we're meant to test ourselves for. In the same way as it isn't all that hard to see in Nicodemus, it often isn't that hard to see in our own thoughts and feelings and actions. What are you expecting or demanding expecting from or demanding from Jesus before you'll really follow him, before you'll really do what he requires of you according to his word? What areas of your life are you holding back from Jesus? Clear commands he's given as you wait on something more than what he's already revealed. Or from another angle, what is it that drew you to Jesus to begin with? What is it about Jesus that makes you interested in Him, Grace. Consider these questions carefully. Unbelieving belief is always rooted in something other than, as we're about to see, a Holy Spirit-given new birth. Unbelieving belief is rooted in the needs to see signs, or hear wise-sounding arguments, or receive assurances of safety, or promises of a certain blessing, or, 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 and all of things, all of those are things God may use. But none of which are sufficient by themselves to create believing belief. So here's the third and final sign that we see. Nicodemus, that we see in Nicodemus. And that was this confusion at and reluctance to receive the teaching of Jesus. Consistent with the Isaiah prophecies we just read from John 12, Nicodemus could not see with his eyes or understand with his heart rather than bringing clarity. As Jesus taught, this is the word of God standing before Nicodemus, teaching the things of God. But rather than bringing clarity, Jesus' words to Nicodemus brought confusion. This is a pretty clever sermon deal I got going here. I use the same letter, clarity and confusion. Rather than being amazed, he was slightly annoyed. See that, the A and the A? Rather than being swift to repent, Nicodemus resisted. When Jesus... When Jesus said that being able to see see the kingdom of God was only possible for those who are born again, Nicodemus said to him, verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And When Jesus further explains, verse 9, Nicodemus said to him again in confusion, how can these things be? Acknowledging that Nicodemus didn't understand and Jesus understood that he didn't understand, And the fact that it stemmed from a spiritual blindness and unbelief, Jesus answered in verse 10, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? You teach others, but you don't get it yourself? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. You're an unbelieving believer. I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And in one final piece of evidence against and condemnation of Nicodemus unbelief. Jesus explained who he really was to him, and how that was good news for all of mankind. Look at thirteen. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, as me, the Son of Man. And as Moses was lifted up, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must. The Son of Man, so must I be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him, who believes in me, Jesus said, may have eternal life. Jesus explained to Nicodemus, a teacher of the law, one who was certainly familiar with Numbers 21, Jesus explained that He was the fulfillment of this remarkable story of Moses and the healing God brought to His people through Moses' staff being lifted up, and that He came, He, Jesus, came from God that he would be raised up on a cross to die for the children of God, and that the eternal life he came to bring came through believing in him. The clear implication of all of this is that even though he, Nicodemus, as a teacher of Israel, should have known and understood and taught these things and welcomed Jesus, he didn't understand and therefore couldn't truly believe. A key sign of unbelieving belief is it is primarily marked by confusion and yeah buts when we encounter Jesus and his teaching. Again, we do well to consider this grace. Is the word of God a source of clarity and joy and life for you when you come to it in your quiet times or do you come to it in your quiet times? And when you do, is it a source of joy and life and clarity or frustration and confusion and dismissal? Do you say with the psalmist, my delight is in the law of the Lord and on it I meditate day and night? Or like the fool is your delight in merely expressing your own theological opinions, biblical opinions? Are you eager to sit under the preaching of the word and study it for yourself or do you find it dull and largely unhelpful? Does Jesus' teaching energize you for obedience or does it bore you? Three sure signs of unbelieving belief that we see in Nicodemus are coming by night, belief belief based on signs and confusion at Jesus' teaching. Look for these. Look for them in yourselves. Look for them in your kids. Look for them in the People of Grace Church. Look for them in anyone who claims to believe in Jesus. And where you find those signs, ask God to drive them out and grant genuine belief and with it the eternal life that Jesus came to bring. Well, if Nicodemus is a real-life example of the kind of unbelieving belief John described in chapter 2, is there anything, does he tell us anything about where the genuine sort comes? If this, is, if this is what unbelieving belief looks like, and these are signs of it, is there any help at all in this text as to where genuine belief comes from? Well, again, according to the kindness of God, yes. Yes. In this passage, we are not only given the signs of unbelieving belief, but also the means by which God produces believing belief. That's the second part here. How, how, to, come, how to become a believing believer. Because Jesus knew Nicodemus even better than Nicodemus knew himself, when, Jesus, when Nicodemus approached Jesus, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, it says in verse 3 he answered him, but there's no actual question that Nicodemus sort of asked. I don't know if you noticed that. But Jesus knew his heart, and he answered the question that was implied in Nicodemus' coming and coming by night. And he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Confused by this, evidently believing Jesus meant that literally, Nicodemus understandably asked how that was possible in verse 4. And in response, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter cannot see, and you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Jesus taught here what theologians have since called the doctrine of regeneration, of being born again. Consider with me five lessons from this text on the new birth that we find here. First, the new birth is needed to see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, regenerated. He cannot see the kingdom of God. The basic idea of regeneration, get this grace, is that we are all born physically alive, but spiritually dead. That is because of the sin of Adam, we all inherit corrupted sinful natures. One practical result is that we can see and understand and hear physical things. You hear my words right now, whether you're a Christian or not. You you see me standing up here and the rest of the people sitting here with physical eyes. We're born that way, but we cannot see and hear and understand spiritual things. And since believing belief is connected to believing, seeing, and hearing spiritual things, we cannot believe truly without God's help. We say the same thing in another way. Hopefully this is familiar to you all. We're born into sin and death. Apart from the mercy and grace of God, we will remain in our sin and death eternally. John wrote his gospel, the whole point of this gospel, which I've tried to make clear to you and is up on the top right corner every week as I preach. The whole point of this gospel, he he wrote it to tell us that Jesus is the Son of God that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in such a way that he did not inherit Adam's sinful nature. On top of that, he lived a life of perfect righteousness. He died on the cross to pay for our sins, the death penalty we deserved, and he rose from the dead to give us his perfect righteousness and eternal life. That's why John's writing, to tell, tell us all of that. And he also wrote his gospel to teach us that we gain access to all of that, not by doing enough good works, but by believing in Jesus. Indeed, 315, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So genuine belief in Jesus, the kind that connects us with the righteousness of Jesus, comes from being born again. And when this happens, when we're born again, We're given eyes to see. We have new eyes to see spiritual, the spiritual truths of the gospel that we couldn't see before. We couldn't hear before. We couldn't understand before that we might truly believe in it. Whatever measure of unbelieving belief that was in us when we're born again will be driven out and replaced by genuine belief with new spiritual eyes to see and ears to hear. Grace, be, be amazed at the reality of what's happening here. The king of kings, the word of God, the one who brought all things, through whom all things were brought into creation, and currently is sustaining all things, was standing in front of Nicodemus. But he couldn't see. He had no idea who stood before him. To be able to recognize Jesus for who he was and to truly believe in him, Nicodemus needed to be born again. Here's the second lesson. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The main point to understand here was that Nicodemus would have had an understanding of the kingdom of God. But it was fundamentally flawed. That's why Jesus rebuked him for not understanding. He had what he needed to know this, at least, about God's kingdom. As a teacher of God's people, he was well studied in the word of God, but his studies were tragically misguided. Along with the rest of the Pharisees, Nicodemus believed, you know this, this is the heart of the Gospels and the heart of the Gospel. Nicodemus believed that people entered God's kingdom through obedience to God's law. That was the great tragedy of his day. He'd given so much of his life. Some of you are in fourth grade and you cannot imagine the idea of having to go through 12th grade of your of school. Some of you have gone on to to college, and even grad school, and you've studied and studied and studied, but I don't think anyone in this room would have studied anything like Nicodemus studied God's word. He'd given so much of his life, so much of his life to knowing what God required and to obeying it, to studying meticulously God's word and obeying it in order to be able to enter the kingdom. And in one simple phrase, think back to Jesus in the temple, the money changers, in one simple action, he turned over their tables, disrupt, disrupted their business. In one simple phrase, Jesus flipped Nicodemus' understanding on its head. Just like the Jews wrongly focused on the messianic passages that describe the, the Christ, the Messiah, coming as a conquering king, missing the others, the referred to him as a suffering servant. They focused exclusively on the passages that connected entrance into the kingdom with obedience, missing the passages that promised it as an act of God's grace. John, in writing this portion of his gospel, had Ezekiel 36 in mind, almost certainly. Ezekiel 36:25. this is a promise. I will sprinkle. So born of water and the Spirit, born again by the work of God, this is this was promised that it would be this way. Ezekiel thirty six, twenty five to twenty seven. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanlinesses, the work of God. And from all of your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your heart of flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. What an amazing promise that Nicodemus seemed completely oblivious of. It was all there to be seen by anyone who had eyes to see. But new birth of water and spirit is needed to see. And seeing is needed to enter the kingdom of God. Third third lesson on this new birth, regeneration, is that it comes from the spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Being born of the flesh, being born in the flesh, all we are able to give birth to is flesh. The simple thing for us to see here is that new birth must come from the Holy Spirit of God. The first birth can come from flesh. The second birth comes from the Spirit. It is not something that any of us are capable of generating on our own. We are truly and utterly incapable of producing the new birth ourselves, in ourselves or in anyone else. It must be regenerated within us by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit always does this in connection with the good news, the gospel of Jesus. You have to believe something. And it is through the proclamation of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that he had come to declare that the Holy Spirit gives us new life. Hear this grace. That is why it is our job to preach the gospel to all without discrimination. This is is our charge is to proclaim this, that the Spirit might bring this new birth. It is not up to us to decide who might respond in faith. We're all equally dead in our sins and trespasses. It is always a miracle of the Holy Spirit when someone is born again, when the gospel comes in power, whether a child who grew up in a Christian home being prayed for and taught the word every day or the most extreme Muslim terrorist. In every Those cases and everything in between. It is the work of the Holy Spirit that causes us to be born again. Fourth, there is mystery. There's mystery in all of this, and it's silly to pretend that there isn't. Do not marvel that I said to you, verse 7, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Grace Church The fact that the Bible clearly teaches, right here and other places, that we need to be born again to see and enter the kingdom of God, that it it comes from the Holy Spirit, its new birth, does not mean that everything about it is clear. Let me give you an example. There's mystery. Let's learn from the mistakes of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They did a bad job in highlighting only half of what the Bible said in many key places. Let's not fall into that same pit. The Bible commands us to believe in Jesus. It's a command. It commands us to believe in Jesus and holds us responsible when we don't. Likewise, it commands us to call others to believe in Jesus and holds them responsible if they refuse. And God's word tells us that all who seek Jesus, Matthew 7, will find him. Okay, those things are all true. We, we need to proclaim the gospel. We need to hear the gospel. We need to choose to believe the gospel, and we're held responsible if we don't. And if you seek it, you will find it, Jesus said. God's word really teaches all of those things. And at the same time, in a mysterious way, it teaches that none of those things are possible apart from the work of the Holy Spirit first, to give new birth. They're all equally true, even if the way that they can be simultaneously true is mysterious. Fifth, and finally, the new birth means that the kingdom of God is simultaneously already and not yet. This was another mistake that Nicodemus made. It's another point of confusion. In his mind, the kingdom was exclusively eschatological or end times in nature. It was to come, he believed, at the fullness of time. Of course, there's a way in which that's true. The fullness of the kingdom will not come until the end. But here's another example of missing half the story. Part of why Nicodemus was so confused by Jesus is that he didn't even have a biblical category for the king's being able to stand in front of him then. The final lesson on the new birth is that it allows us to participate in the nowness of the kingdom of God. That is, when we are born again, we see that Jesus is truly king with a kingdom that is on earth even now, that he is with us right now as king by the Spirit, and that we are a part of his kingdom when we come under his rule, live according to his purposes, and seek his glory. This new birth is such that it doesn't merely prepare us functionally, this is how a lot of us have failed. We we believe we pray a prayer at some point in time, and there's this sort of this weird kind of purgatory deal called life until we die to go and be with Jesus. But the new birth allows us to live in the kingdom now. It, it's such that it doesn't merely prepare us to enter the kingdom at some future time. It also welcomes us, even in this moment, and the rest of John's gospel tells us what that looks like and how to function that way along with the rest of the New Testament. So unbelieving belief, summing it all up, is of no benefit at all in you or anyone you know. It cannot save you from your sins or help you to live as God intends. In fact, unbelieving belief is often worse than, real, than simple unbelief. Unbelieving belief is often worse than simple unbelief. For with it, we believe even though we don't. We have to first realize that we don't actually believe before we can believe. Sure signs of this are embarrassment at Jesus, belief-based on signs, and confusion of the Jesus teaching. It is the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit alone that can overcome this, or unbelief. New birth is needed to see and enter the kingdom of God. There's mystery to it, and it means that the kingdom of God is both already and not yet. By it, the Spirit opens our eyes. By the new birth, the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see God as he truly is. Holy, and awesome, ourselves as we truly are, as rebels and sinners and enemies of God, and our need as it truly is for the mercy and grace that is found from God in Christ alone. This happens through the gospel when it comes to us. And when it does, we will truly believe because we'll be able to see all these things as they really are. We'll truly find life in Jesus and truly participate in his kingdom even now as his sons and daughters. Nicodemus shows us what unbelieving belief looks like. Jesus shows us what believing belief looks like. May the grace of God cause us to turn from Nicodemus to Jesus we might be saved. Now, originally, this is where the sermon ended. But I want—if you have your Bibles—go to Second Kings. So I want to close with just a passage. Second Kings six. I don't know of a place in the Bible that gives a more clear picture of this type of thing. So the the Second Kings six. There's a war going on, as always, almost in the Old Testament between Israel and it's pagan neighbors, in this case it's Syria, 2 Kings six, eight. Now I want you to listen to this, we'll, we'll come to them in just a minute, but I want you to listen to all of this through the ears of Elisha's servant, okay? This is Elisha's servant. There's the king and Elisha, they're, they're the main characters, but listen to this passage, maybe for the first time, through the ears of Elisha's servant. So once the king of Syria was warring against Israel, and so he took counsel with his servants, saying, at such and such a place shall be my camp. So the king of Syria talks with one of his servants, and names where his camp, his base camp, his war camp is going to be. But the man of God, Elisha, but the man of God sent word to the king of Israel saying, beware that you do not pass this place. God revealed to Elisha the king of Syria's plans. And so he warned the king of Israel, beware that you do not pass this place for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to that, to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used, used to warn him. Elisha used to warn the king of Israel when God would reveal things to him. So that he saved himself there more than once or twice. This happened Fairly regularly, apparently. Okay. And the mind of the king of, of Syria, understandably, was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said, what's going on here, basically? Will, will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? He thinks he's got a, a spy in his midst. He thinks one of his ser- servants is leaking this information. And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet, who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Now, just a super quick aside, you would think if this were able to be the case, the king of Syria would already realize this is foolish to go to war against this nation. But this is what unbelief looks like. You don't realize things like this. Okay. And so, verse 13, and he said, go and see where he is. The king of Syria said to his servant, go and see where Elisha is, that I may send, that I may send and seize him. Gotta stop this stuff here. It was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. So the king of Syria realizes Elisha's a problem. He's Warding all of his war plans. And so he sends his whole great army with horses and chariots to go and get Elisha. Okay, now here's where the servant enters in. When the servant of the man of God rose, you picture he's got his coffees and his robe, and he goes outside to check on the day, and his his eyes get wide fast. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. King Assyria sent this army. He goes outside and he sees it. And understandably, he starts to freak out. And the servant says, alas, my master, what shall we do? Elisha, come look, what's going on? What do we do about this? And he said, Elisha said to his servant, don't, don't be afraid. That's weird, right? That's a weird thing to say when there's an entire enemy army surrounding you, hunting you personally. But it's not weird, Grace Church i land this plane very quickly here. He said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. So you picture Elisha's servant looking around. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not seeing them. I don't see what's going on here. I want to trust you, but something's off. I don't see anything. Then Elisha prayed. And said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. This isn't the same type of new birth that we're talking about with Nicodemus, but it's the same type of miraculous work of God that enables us to see things that are there and are real and are true and are remarkable that we don't have eyes to see. So what happened? The Lord answered Elisha's prayer and opened his servant's eyes that he could see. He opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, The mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. He didn't create those things right then. Elisha could see them all along. His servant couldn't, and so he was nervous and couldn't believe. This is what the new birth looks like. What's there is there to be seen for all who have eyes to see and ears to hear. But it is the work of the Holy Spirit coming through the gospel that enables us to see the truth of the gospel, the truth of who God is and who we are, that Jesus is Lord, that we would believe on him and be saved.